Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This week on the Big Nose Podcast, I am delighted to be joined by an old classmate of mine, Gavin Maguire. Gavin has recently returned from Tokyo, Japan, where he was a key member of Team Ireland's coaching team. As long as I've known Gavin, he's been associated with a game of table tennis, getting a schoolyard nickname to match. I guess in primary school and growing up through there, it's seen as an uncool sport at that age, so you get a lot of slaggings and... You know, others, table tennis, boy, whatever. Gavin takes me back to where the journey all began and the influence of family. And my mother kind of said, you're going to try this. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. (laughs) And I went on and on for a couple of weeks, but eventually she more or less forced me down there. Gavin is very honest and frank throughout our chat, reflecting how the path less travelled isn't always the most supportive. Everybody in my life, as supportive as they've been, they always said, when are you going to get a real job? Determination paid off and Gavin explains why he set up his own company around his sport. That's why I started Tailands Provider, to bring back access to Tailands. The move from player to coach is seeing Gavin take on a role with para-athlete Colin Judge. Gavin speaks to me about Colin and their journey together so far. He uses that uniqueness to build his own profile and to be the happiest man on earth uh, when you might think he has all the world's challenges in front of him. but. He's happier than you or I are any day of the week. Gavin was in a unique position where he was able to attend the games alongside his girlfriend, Ellen Keane. Both ever to professionals, he shares with me the lengths the couple went to in their preparation. That all the sacrifices that she made mostly or we made as a couple when she kicked me out of house three weeks before we went so she could isolate and focus. I chatted to Gavin about the joys of Tokyo 2020 on a personal level. He shares with me what it was like to witness Ellen winning gold in the pool. Like obviously it was an extremely proud moment and I was delighted for her and I may even have shed one or two tears. All that and more to come this week on the Big Nose Podcast. Gavin, it's very welcome to the show today. Hi Pierce, thanks for having me on. Um, times like this I really wish it was a TV show so that your viewers or listeners could see the shirt you're wearing because it's... Uh, giving me energy for this podcast. As I alluded to in the intro, you know, you had a big role playing in, in Table Tennis Ireland um, in the Paralympics this year. But let's go all the way back to why you decided to get into table tennis. How, as a child, that most of your peers probably were kicking a football or rugby ball or more interested in Gaelic football. Um, how did you find yourself picking up the paddle and getting into table tennis? It was a strange one. Right from the start, I was always a sporty kid and I, I liked to try my hand at most things or anything that I could find. Table dance was something that was in my family to some extent. Racket sports were, table dance, badminton, tennis, they were all kind of prevalent in our family, whether it be cousins or whoever. Yeah. And a cousin of mine was in the Leinster team and in a local Clontarf uh, table dance club called East Point at the time. And my mother kind of said, you're going to try this. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. <laughs> and I uh, went on and on for a couple of weeks, but eventually she more or less forced me down there. First what night. age were you talking? I was eight at the time. But it had been around in the family before that? Yeah, so everyone in my family had tried their hand at a, at a minimum. Yeah. Um, and then my cousin obviously was in the Leinster team. He was very good at table dance. So, yeah, forced down. First night there, and that was it then. I was hooked. So. You really got into it then. Well, I suppose... 
as I said, you know, your peers probably would have been playing with the local football team, gated team. Was that something that you were you felt you were missing out on, or was it something that? To a certain age, I played a lot of sports anyway. I kept yeah. up, I kept up Gaelic football with Parnells and football with St Martins and Donny Carney. I played badminton also at the time, or I had taken up badminton a year later. So I was trying my hand at a lot of things, and football's always been close to my heart as well. Anyway, I still keep very up to date with not so much in the playing sense but in terms of viewing so yeah it was it was a strange one i guess at that age and going up through school being the one who played table tennis you know when that's kind of something that you know what was your reaction of your peers because obviously you know it was something that was different so maybe you kind of had to explain it to those who were around yeah to my best friends always kind of didn't ask too many questions yeah. actually they were always just interested in what made me happy or what was best for me yeah. and they didn't didn't care what I did but I guess in primary school and growing up through there it's seen as an uncool sport at that age so you get a lot of slaggings and you know others oh, table tennis boy whatever uh, and that was fine I didn't really care it was water off a duck's back because I love table tennis and continue to do so and to be honest all that kind of going against the going against the grain and doing yeah. what people didn't do that for me that's what built my character today and, and exactly I'll it, show it you. forced me a lot of determination and, and i feel that stood to me to, to the day so yeah it must be like as it says if you sometimes stick out a little bit it's always kind of kind of a case of two fingers see i'll keep doing this because i get the enjoyment and the satisfaction i like it and i don't care really what you say about it I imagine though, back in the nineties when table when you were doing starting off in table tennis, the facilities probably weren't there. The infrastructure, the supports, the government bodies probably weren't as prevalent as we find today. So, in terms of kind of getting into the sport, okay, you, you had the sport in your family, but was the facilities that you had back then incomparable to what you have today? I don't think the facilities have dramatically changed in minority sports across the board. That's yeah. a big problem, you know, funding and having the right facilities to play, having a place to train all the time, whether it be in the national team or down to the club scene. So with time, of course, things have improved, but it's still a massive issue to get table time or to be to find a club nearby. I'm in a privileged position that the club that I play for now, UCD, because I went to university there as well, yeah. they have a full-time table dance hall and residing in Blackrock College. So I have access whenever I want, but... There's not very many people in my position in the country, especially the up-and-comers, who are trying to do something or trying to maybe become professional one day. It's. Uh, I think, yeah, as you said, across minority sports, you see that, where you know the big focus goes into the larger sports that kind of capture a bigger demographic. And it's something that, you know, like a sports like yourself, maybe badminton as well, would be something similar. But in terms of um, where you're at, in terms of, you know, you've gone through the younger age group in the schools and stuff like that, and you, you obviously went down, you played, and you obviously, someone looked at you and said, okay, this guy is better than most kids his age. And obviously you went on to represent Ireland at a young age in the schools. And what was kind of that like going from just a sport you played maybe starting off at eight to all of a sudden being picked out as someone who could, you know, be a star of the future? I wouldn't say that I really realised at the time that I was maybe what you say a star of the future. At that time, I was just really excited with the opportunity to go away. Like, there wasn't many kids my age or many kids growing up at all, whatever age, that were going away to represent their country in Ireland, to going into Europe, going into Belgium, France, Germany, throughout all my teen years. So, or, or before even, I played for Ireland when I was nine in Scotland, so... 
uh, there wasn't many people doing what yeah, I was doing. Mad, but like, to go and say, okay, I'm representing my country on an international basis as a nine-year-old, you're probably too young at that stage to understand. Yeah, it didn't really sink sink in until I was probably 10 or 11 what I was doing to some extent. Yeah. And I always remember one silly conversation with a friend, Marco Flynn. He told me one time we went to, went to Belgium as the national team and I was struggling in a match and I remember him shouting, you're doing this for your country. And it's so cheesy and so corny, but then it, that was the moment it clicked what I was actually doing. And I got even more nervous and I lost really, really quickly. <laughs> but... Uh, but then it started, the, the importance of what I was doing started to build in my mind. That must be a huge learning curve at the very beginning because, you know, all of a sudden you've gone from playing as, you know, a Joe Soap going down to the local club to representing on an international level. That must be just so steep of a learning curve and all of a sudden the ramifications of either winning or losing is not just for you, it's for your team or whatever. That must be difficult as a, a young person to... Yeah, difficult, difficult in terms of maybe the burden or whatever. But I always, I always was confident in what I was doing. So I knew at times if I was coming up against someone that was too good or better, it was the system. It was wasn't that I didn't want to train hard enough or I wasn't training hard enough. I didn't have enough opportunity to play or train enough. And when I came up with people my own level, I always backed myself. So I kind of, I kind of thrived under that bit of pressure or that bit of uh, competition. Something I've uh, had throughout my whole life, and it stood to me. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's something that, um, especially on, maybe on an individual sport, you need it more than, than most of you, or t- a team sport where you can rely on others. Yeah, it's something that's quite interesting. It's a lonely place when you're playing bad, put it that way. <laughs> um, obviously, as you get older and the hours of practice become more needed, as you find that you're now representing the country uh, on an international stage, you obviously need to increase, you need to get more table time, I suppose is the phrase that you'd use. But you also had to go to school. You also had to have friends and you also had to have family life and striking a balance. Do you feel that there was it was tough at times for you back then when you were maybe going into secondary school perhaps and you needed to be practicing more more and more? I never have to say I never found it too difficult. I would say I didn't manage my time fantastically. My schoolwork was the thing that suffered. But I, at that time, I was happy to let it suffer. Yeah. I always knew I was clever. I knew I was capable. And I could do well in school if I applied myself. Uh, or could do better in school, put it that way. Yeah. But tableness was what I wanted to do and what I was planning to do for my career from that from an early age. You know. When did you... When, when was the moment... Was there a moment, I suppose? Not when was the moment. Was there a moment where you said, okay, this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life? Yes. I wouldn't say... Not a defining moment, but... One of my best friends within the sport of table tennis, John Murphy, he's now the head coach of table tennis Australia, head hunted. Uh, he was table tennis Ireland's national yeah. coach. He started the journey. He started the path for all the players in Ireland. He was the first one that went and played professionally. And I just followed him. I watched him and I wanted to be like him and I wanted to do what he was doing. So I followed in his footsteps. Maybe then I think a couple of players followed after me and that, that kind of started a domino effect, I guess. But, but watching him and growing up close to him a few years behind him that was that was what really triggered me into into the career in table tennis and he was never good in school not even close to what I was in school I I hope if he's listening he won't mind me saying that he didn't care he knew that he was going to make it in table tennis and I knew that I had I was clever I could have a fallback option if I needed it but I wanted table tennis it really kind of comes across as you know you were stubborn enough to you know forgo whatever you could do on an academic side possibly this is something that you really you, you had a grow for as they say yeah well I have to say like 
everybody in my life, as supportive as they've been, they always said, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to like cut down on the table? When are you going to start to go put more into your college work or whatever you're doing? And the same in school. It was, when are you going to come play football? Why are you play, wasting your time playing table tennis? I didn't listen to anybody. I was just so set in my ways and what I wanted to do. I was driven from the beginning. So, And they all, as you said, they acted as uh, influences for me to just keep pushing, keep go further. But it is, it is stubbornness as well. Like to just keep, you know, one vision, and sometimes that's it. As you grow up, as we all know, there's distractions that come along the way. You need sometimes just to have that focus, which obviously you have had all the way through your career, and you know you took the road less taken, I suppose, in terms of that way. And like you said, some people start asking the question, uh, "When are you going to get a real job?" That must be sometimes a little bit kind of you know piss off and leave me alone this is a real job and don't be kind of talking down to me absolutely like my parents included in that by the way they were always at me when are you going to get a real job my dad was a builder when are you coming on the site with me whatever and I had no interest I literally was if you're not with me I'm sticking two fingers up at you and I'm going to prove you wrong and it's a little bit twisted but uh, all I wanted to do was show people that I could do it and you you were the one who told me I couldn't and look at me now and you know what it did pay off pay off because doing a little bit of research obviously growing up with you in school and I was aware of what you were doing and you know what you were achieving with skill level and, and, and you went on the list is quite long in terms of accolades in the sport of table tennis and you know I could be here all night in the podcast for an hour long and you'd have no listeners by the end of it probably not so it, there's a lot of accolades you know national and I just wanted to kind of get a sense of maybe giving the listeners a sense of when you achieved your first win or maybe your first tournament when it went from maybe a case of you were just practicing now you're actually entered into a tournament an official tournament and it was judges and it was maybe a crowd do you remember that kind of to a certain extent i do i don't remember my exact first experience but i remember my first tournament it was down in the iwa in clontarf for my first year playing tennis, I didn't enter any tournaments. I went between the eight, years of eight and nine just training. Yeah. When I was nine, then I was allowed to enter tournaments. So I went down. I remember playing. I lost all my first my first matches in the group stage. I lost them all. Uh, didn't care. I just remember being delighted to be there. And I cried a couple of times after losing, but it was very quickly gone when I got, knew I could play another match. Yeah. But then I actually, you moved on from the group stage into what was called the plate competition, which was basically the, the loser's cup, put it that way, for oh, want of a better word. But uh, I then came runner-up in the plate competition. And so I received a trophy at my first tournament. And that was probably a, another moment where so I won... I wanted more. It is somewhere in the garage at home in my parents' house. It definitely still lives on, but I couldn't pinpoint it. Then, obviously, a national championship comes about and you're in that. And that's a different level altogether in terms of, you know, you're taking on your peers who have probably been around the game longer than you. Yeah, well, the nationals was always the biggest tournament of the year. It was the one that everybody built up to, the one that everybody talked about. And it was the one that... If your name was on that cup, you were somebody in table tennis. Yeah. Um, you look at the list of winners now, and it's still it's just so prestigious. And there's only real champion of champions on that on that cup, who've done it all and seen it all. Um, 
and my first one actually was came as a massive surprise when I was 18 I was a complete outsider I would have been like seventh or eighth in the seedings and I actually beat John Murphy in the final who I spoke about already as someone yeah. I admired massively he to be, was going for his third in a row I think he was actually he was quite nervous when he got into a winning position against me suddenly realized I'm going to win three in a row here yeah. and then it collapsed on him and I came back and won not to say I didn't play my part in that but uh saw the finish line too soon and and i captured the title then and at 18 i knew what i had done but it didn't sink home with me until i won my second national title five or six years later um after having a a spell in germany playing full-time as a professional i needed to work a lot harder to win that second title the first one came about as a little bit of luck to a certain extent Um, and then i had a lot of downfalls after that I hadn't hit the highs that I thought I had. I was just lucky at that well, tournament. It was obviously, must have been a high bar to set, you know, in terms of going and winning it and beating, you know, an opponent that you admired and then going back to it and maybe not wondering why, why didn't it work this time? Exactly, yeah. It was, that, was, that was one of the toughest points in my senior career and it came very early as a 19-year-old as yeah. after winning at 18 when all of a sudden the expectation was massive and there was people looking at me going, this is the new number one, you know, he's taken John Murphy's pedestal. But that wasn't the case. It was never the case. And I was naive to believe that that was the case and listen to people. Uh, And it took a few years to really get over that and solidify myself at the top of the list as the real number one. And one of the things I noticed with doing a bit of research is that, you know, I didn't realise it was, not that I didn't realise it was doubles or, you know, team events, but... You have won a lot as a as as member of a team, and can you maybe how does that differ in terms of winning it on an individual level and then in winning as a, as part of a group or a team? For me, I loved tennis because it was an individual sport and I was responsible for my own success to a certain amount. But then being able to share it with guys who are doing the same thing as you was always the best for me. Going to the world team championships with the lads that was the pinnacle of what my career and that was what I enjoyed the most and there was four of us that were in that national team for probably 10 to 12 years together John Murphy moving from player to coach but the other three we remained as the men's team for a period of 10-11 years and it must be some camaraderie to be mixing with the same guys and working incredible and none of us appreciated it as much as we should have and it's only now that I've obviously stepped back from international play that I really realise how much I valued that and how good an experience it was and how good a team we were because now following us we've all stepped away from international tennis and the team is in dire straits you know there's the youngsters are good and they're trying their best but they're not at the level that we were and it's going to take some time before they are and i think that's that's a shame in minority sport we weren't respected enough that people didn't really realize well these guys are playing up to 28 29 30 it's unusual in the sport of tennis because it's so underfunded people generally would kind of quit around 21, 22 when they start to move into that's jobs. A, that's a very valid point because I imagine as, you know, as a national team and as you're saying, there was more senior people playing at a more prolonged level than most other nations would probably have, as you said, the up and coming. You're having success as a team. Why do you think there wasn't maybe that spotlight on the sport that should have been realistically? To be honest, I think it was just taken for granted. That's the real thing that's the real problem with our specific situation i believe that table ireland and anybody watching us 
just thought, well, there's the lads out there doing their thing. But if they weren't here, the other lads would do it. You know, the guys would fall in behind. And yeah. But actually, that was never the case. There was, I hate to sound big-headed, but there was no one even close to our level at the time. And the and probably there to bring up the levels. No, you had to go away. You had to become a professional player abroad if you wanted to succeed. And we were the only ones that invested and, and really went for it for over a, a number of years rather than a trial for a year or six months or whatever. Yeah. And maybe one of, the, one of the stranger questions you'll get asked today is, do you remember the last tournament that you were in? One thing I do remember from my last season was the Ulster Open was the only Irish domestic tournament that I hadn't won. Yeah. Uh, I had won the Nationals three times. I had won the Munster Open twice. I had won whatever the Irish classification a few times. And the, the Ulster Open always evaded me for some reason. I lost in the final a number of times. And... I just thought that I couldn't win up there. Yeah. yeah, eventually in my last season, I finally got that got that title under the belt. Not that it's the biggest title of the year, but it was just one that I was chasing for a long yeah, time. So that. that was a big one as well. That was a big one to, to hold that cup and have that picture and to know that I've won the full set in Ireland. That was my last nice memory, I guess. There, exactly, yeah. yeah. Are you, you alluded to it earlier on. You know, you've spent three, de- three years there playing, uh, you know, constantly, and this helped in terms of performing your game. What did you learn about yourself, about the game, different what parts of the game when you were in Germany there? I would say the the main lesson I learned in Germany was how difficult it was to find those small percentage improvements. That it wasn't it took those three years to become maybe five or ten percent better. You know, people think that you go and become a professional, you train for one or two years and bam, you're you're top hundred in the world. It doesn't yeah. work like that. It's it's dedicating yourself over a long period of time with the right diet, the right training plan, the right you know physical program, uh, the right amount of hours, the right match program. You, ha- you have to have so many different things in line and correct just to make those incremental gains. And that was the, the biggest learning point for me, how, how hard it really is to get to the top of the game, top in any sport. But I always compare table to golf. The depth is incredible. You know, it's, it's when you've got a country like China in there who their national sport and their population um, figures stack up in their favour exactly yeah so it's it's a tough one on that like um, on a previous podcast with a guest Megan O'Neill she was a musician and she said she had to get out of Ireland to learn about her craft and it sounds to me that because we're such a small island and outside of maybe any financial support but as a sport to understand it better and to improve it a lot more it is essential for anybody who wants to be at the top of the game to get off this island. Right now, it is impossible to become a high-level tailor player if you don't move away. Absolutely impossible. You can become a high-level junior, but once yeah. you get to that senior game, it's you have to go away and get a higher level of sparring at a minimum. If all the other things I mentioned, sports science, diet, everything else, they you can do them from Ireland if you have the right backing and funding. But the level of sparring and training partners, we don't have that here. And unfortunately, we're a while away from having that here. You did have a decade or so on the Irish senior team. And there must be some memories or takeaway stories that you could share with some of the listeners about maybe times you were travelling, you know, representing Ireland on the international stage, don that green jersey. Do you have any great takeaway memories? To be honest, it's, it sounds, again, it's probably going to sound cliche, but looking back now, it's 
just that camaraderie that we built up as a team and living that life with a group of guys there's just nothing like it and I can I can't put it into words for the listeners but it was the biggest privilege of my life and it will always be the biggest privilege of my life to have done that and to have explored the world with these same group of people um, I probably shouldn't not because of your podcast but uh, I probably can't share too many of the night out stories because we've got a few wild ones I would say what goes on tour exactly what, on tour, exactly um, but what's the best city or place you visited as a group as a group the best city we ever visited was Tokyo uh, I know I was there recently and we'll probably touch on that shortly but we were also there in 2014 for the World Cha- Team Championships and a few of us decided that we would also stay for four or five days afterwards for a holiday because, you know, you're in Tokyo. Um, and it was the end of the season. So we stayed four or five days afterward, explored everything, Mount Fuji, the Shibuya Crossing. We did absolutely everything you could do in four or five days and that was the absolute best place I've ever been. What well, planning was a big part of your journey? In more recent times, you've begin, begun to give back to the community that helped raise you in the sport, uh, starting your own coaching company, Table Tennis Provider. What moved you to do this? Well, I was working um, with Table Tennis Ireland and Table Tennis Ulster at a time as like a development coach, yeah. um, and then more recently as a national para coach, but it would never make up all of my like a full-time job unfortunately because of funding and whatever else so I always had to have private coaching on the side and doing small jobs here and there so I just wanted a way to formalize that I always saw what I was doing as something that I could grow I could grow my private coaching business but I also saw an opportunity to get into schools build a brand in Ireland when there's absolutely nobody doing it um table dance is a fantastic game for school kids and why nobody why table dance is not freely available in all the schools is not beyond me but it just takes someone to go and do it is it is it history maybe you know with the GAA the way they are I think that's part of it but you wouldn't have my parents or your parents maybe I think they all have an experience of table dance whether it be in school or in a local church or a youth club there's not many from 40 to 70 or 40 to 80 that you can say table dance to and they've never tried it they always have tried it in school or wherever but then there was a period during our time where table dance just became extinct in schools and obviously we didn't go to churches and youth clubs that, that became a thing in the past. Yeah. So the accessibility to Thailand just went down the drain. And it's that's why I started Thailand's Provider, to bring back access to Thailand for the people of Ireland. I'm starting very small in Dublin and, and in small areas, but the goal is there to bring it to the island. In terms of Table Tennis Provider, what services does it offer? A range of services. At the moment, private coaching, schools coaching, corporate coaching... They would be our main areas. Um, I am looking to get into the equipment business where we start to sell tables and that that comes with the plan of getting into schools, getting them our tables and uh, equipment is obviously the issue there. But yeah, right now, schools coaching is our, is our number one and that's what we're trying to, I guess, attract schools to get in contact if we haven't gotten in contact with them already to try and get a coach in there and get kids playing. Get them young. You know, that's what they always say. That's what the GA always did. So you get them young, get them in and, you know, You'll have them. You'll have them for life. Maybe something that I always find difficult. I play golf, as you know, and I play golf in a peculiar way. I have an unorthodox swing, and but it works for me. And dress sense. I've and seen dress, pictures. And dress sense. We won't talk about that. How did you adapt, or how did you find adapting from the player who knew what you were doing to going and coaching and imparting knowledge and advice to somebody who was at maybe a different level or you know varying levels depending on who was in front of you 
have to say, I said it earlier on about the, the pathway. That always was something that I really focused on when I started to become a coach. I was interested in it as a player. I was interested in helping others to follow my journey and to, to try and follow in my footsteps. So that became a really easy transition to go from player to coach because it was just a, a formalized way of doing that and providing opportunities. That's always something I've loved to do and helping helping kids or shaping kids into into young adults. It's something that I take pride in. Yeah. And on a on a more selfish level i didn't always have to be the one competing to be competitive you know i I wanted the people that were working with me to win as much as i wanted myself to win and when they won i took i took my gratitude or my uh i got my kicks out of that you know i got what i needed out of them winning it didn't have to be me your excellent uh, playing credentials and the development of your coaching portfolio becoming para high performance coach for table tennis ireland must have been a great moment for yourself in terms of you know being acknowledged in the sport. Yeah, like para sport was something I was never involved in. I yeah. couldn't have told you the first thing other than guys in wheelchairs play. You know, that's I was so naive to what it was, so naive to what it was capable of, and the people inside it were capable of. But a job came about to become the Irish Paris standing coach, and only for standing players. I saw that application. It was a one day a month contract. It was nothing more or less, but. I saw a potential opportunity there to maybe go to a Paralympics one day and put that on my coaching CV. So again, from a selfish point of view is why I started or I went for the job. But very, very quickly, I realized how amazing the people are in Parasport, be it the parents, the kids, the gratitude levels that I've experienced from coaching kids in Parasport to coaching kids in able body sport is just completely different worlds. You know, one word of advice to a kid in Paris sport, and it's thank you so much. You helped him. You helped little Johnny. You made his day, and you might not even get a thanks after a nine-hour slog in a training camp with an able-bodied camp. You know, um, so possibly a reflection on humanity. I think so to a certain extent, but it was just they never got the support, and I felt that as a player myself in a minority sport, I didn't get the support to fulfill my career ambitions as a player kids in Paris sport even more so they're so neglected in so many ways and that's then I guess where that determination came in again where I wanted to to help people on that pathway and show them that there was something that they could do within sport or and just to have a better life by being involved in sport so what did the role entail did you have to come up with you know training plans did you have to yeah so at the end of the day I was high performance coach so my real job was to work with our only high performance athlete Colin Judge yeah and then to create a pathway for some for other para players to follow and hopefully go to Paralympics down the road. But it quickly became also a development role. There was so little structure there. There was so few players that we had to do something at grassroots level as well, irrespective of the high-performance role. Yeah. So it was getting in touch with as many people as possible, putting the feelers out there, getting to know people, a lot of networking at different uh, disability events and and we went from a squad of four at my first para camp to a squad of 45 at, by my last para camp wow. so that might be that in in para sport finding kids to play disability tailwinds that's huge growth so i suppose one of the reasons i got you on to chat was because i wanted to know what the experience was like for yourself first of all and then as part of a team ireland coaching team and just team ireland i suppose what was Tokyo like this year? Well, as I told you earlier, Tokyo was the best place I've ever been, but it was very different this year. Was, we weren't allowed to leave the village, um, so we were very restricted in what we could do. But 
Paralympic Games like no other. It's it was the first multi-sport event I'd ever been to in my career as a player or a coach, and that was incredible in itself to see so many different people, so many different shapes and sizes, sports, facilities, whatever. That was incredible in the first place. And then just how organized the Olympics or the Paralympics is in terms of what's how they run that show, I have no Jesus. idea. It's a well-oiled machine and, and the Japanese were incredible. Like if you wanted one nationality to run something well, I suppose the Japanese have a have a stereotype of being quite organised. Yeah, I think, to be honest, when I really look back, I don't think anybody could have ran a COVID Games other than Japan, or maybe Germany might have fallen into that bracket, but I don't think anybody else could have run a COVID Games the way they did. The discipline required to uh, stick to the rules. Yeah, and the level of volunteers. There was there was five volunteers ready to carry your bag at any moment. You know, There was just so many people giving their time to, to make it a success there. As coach uh, to Colin, you would have an insight again as a player and as an individual. You obviously spend a lot of time together, um, you know, on and off the table tennis. Perhaps for those who are maybe unfamiliar with Colin, um, maybe you might be able to give us an insight into who he is, how he is as a person, and, and how, how he got on at the Olympics and Paralympics this year. Yeah, so Colin is a 26 year old table tennis player, and without going into medical definitions, Colin has one arm. So he's missing his right arm and his two legs. Quite a unique disability. You'll often find uh, amputees missing one, maybe two, yeah. but to be someone missing three is quite unique. And that just kind of adds to his character. He uses that uniqueness to build his own profile and to be the happiest man on earth uh, when you might think he has all the world's challenges in front of him, yeah. but he's happier than you or I are any day of the week, no matter what's in front of him, uh, which is a testament to him. And yeah, just a, an incredible athlete, an incredible guy, and his dedication to the sport is much greater than mine ever was. Uh, um, yeah, just level of application. I would say he's one of the cleverest guys I've ever met, but also one of the stupidest guys I've ever met. Uh, I hope he's listening to that one, because I say that to him all the time. Yeah, just application levels like no other. Ready to train 24-7. Like, any time, any day, any place, he'd be there. And obviously leading into the games, and they were obviously a postponed games. Um, how did you prefer prepare for this? You know, this is the pinnacle for a lot of athletes going to it. How did you, as a coach, prepare Colin for it? It was a tough one because Colin, again, go, going into the the politics of parasport, there's a classification system. So Colin became European champion in class yeah. two uh, wheelchair table tennis at in twenty seventeen just actually when I took over as national coach not unrelated but that was just when I took over then in 2018 Colin was reclassified into a higher category of class 3 which would be against more able competitors so guys with less disability and Colin would uh, be one of the most disabled in his class for want of a better expression um, so the then we went from looking at we're going for Paralympic gold in Tokyo to we just need to qualify now that's we're up against it to even qualify and even be there so there was lots of um things we were dealing with over the couple of years with COVID thrown in there we're trying to qualify and the nerves and the disappointment going from that expectation to now my my dream might be dead here i might never qualify for a paralympics so, so yeah really changed. completely shifted and when you're a kid that's grown up his whole life dreaming about that paralympic games and yeah. that paralympic gold medal to then know that because of my disability I may never get there and I may never even get close to that medal 
and it was a decision made by somebody else. So that not, did change the expectation going to the games? Absolutely, yeah, com- completely changed our expectation and we've really shifted to Paris as our real goal for, for medals or, or big results. Tokyo always became about getting there, getting the experience and if we got wins or if we got results out there, happy days, but they weren't what we went for as such. And was that planning begun already for Paris? Yeah, the planning is well underway. Uh, Colin's on holidays at the moment, but once he gets back, we'll have a debrief about Tokyo, and we'll start to we'll start to put in place the training plans and what we're going to do together to to get him there and to get a medal. And I believe he's capable of it, so he's got to make a few adjustments. He might not like them, but uh, that's that's what we've got to do. That's your role as a coach, I suppose. Yeah. In terms of the Paralympics, you have another interest to keep an eye on while you were over there in Japan and that was of course the progress of a certain swimmer. Um, how did you manage that, the emotions of all, all of that going on and being able to focus as well on what you had to achieve for Team Ireland? Well, for any listener who's, who doesn't know what you're alluding to, obviously I'm, I'm with Ellen Keane who became a gold medalist over there. But both of us are extremely professional in what we're doing. There was never a case of we're a couple, we might get excited over there and, and be spending too much time together, unfocused. That was never a possibility with the kind of mindset that we both have and the professionalism that she has, which again, outshines anything I ever did. Yeah, so in terms of focus, that was never an issue. But Colin had a match postponed on the night of Ellen's final. Right. So it actually meant that I was able to go and watch the final. That experience was like no other. I was so nervous, like stone in my throat the whole way through. It was actually the first time I'd ever seen her swim because because of COVID, we yeah. got together during COVID, and yeah, that I became like a little child in the in the in the arena because it wasn't my arena. It wasn't where I was confident to, and I was watching, and I had no control. I didn't even really realize what I was watching. You know, yeah, when you were kind of, I shouldn't say a fish out of water in terms of wasn't your discipline. Yeah, exactly, and you kind of. You have an insight into exactly what you're watching when it's your sport. Whereas I don't know if her, how fast she was going was fast enough. I don't know where she should push a little bit harder. I don't know where she should be gaining or losing time. So all of that inside knowledge that I would have in my own sport to be a comfortable viewer, I didn't have any of that. I suppose well, the realisation of when you know her name went up and it was first, what was that like for you? For me... Like obviously it was an extremely proud moment and I was delighted for her and I may even have shed one or two tears uh, that nobody saw. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. But um, to be honest, she went there to win gold. So it was always something that she was not expecting but knew that if she performed in the right way, that's what she was going to come home with. So it was just, I guess, uh, fulfillment in that moment that all the sacrifices that she made mostly or we made as a couple when she kicked me out of house three weeks before we went so she could isolate and focus um it was just fulfillment and, and justification yeah because i think a lot of people were surprised with her, her reaction and the interviews that she did initially after so it was like it hadn't sunk in and i suppose it probably takes a long time for things like this but she must be maybe coming home was probably more when it sunk in. Yeah, definitely. And you're in an arena with no fans either, so there's no, True. there's a lot less emotion over there. And not until she did the homecoming in Clontarf did she did it really hit her, and and she got emotional herself. That I guess when it sunk in. But to be honest, I think it's been a 13 year slog for her to get to that medal. So in in many ways, it's a relief more than than anything else. It's I knew I was capable of that. What's next for yourself? Uh, next for myself is. 
a hard-earned break, a little break from the game, and then back into planning with Colin, and I'm looking at taking on a new coach and table and provider in the near future, so then starting to get back into the schools if, if COVID allows in October. Well, I wish you the very best of luck, and um, send their regards to Alan as well, and, and, and to Colin, what a great performance it was, and to you as well, best of luck with all the coaching, best of luck with the, the business as well. I'm sure we'll see some some people at the Olympics in the future who started off in a table tennis provider sometime soon. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. No problem at all, Piers. Thank you very much.